Welcome to AUSA's Army Matters Podcast, focusing on what's important to the total Army community. We bring vital Army conversations and interviews on issues relevant to soldiers, military families, and all of you amazing Army supporters. Rotating each week, our show includes Soldier Today, Leading Great Teams, Family Voices, and Thought Leaders. Let's tune into the show. Napoleon is supposed to have remarked that when China rose, the world would quake. China has now arisen and is continuing to rise, and the world is quaking. For the first time since the 19th century, the United States no longer boasts the world's indisputably largest economy. As a result, we are witnessing a return to what is commonly referred to as great power competition. This is a euphemism for an almost physical reality. An object so large must have the greatest consequence for any system that must accommodate it. China's enormous size and sophistication mean that its rise will be of the utmost significance. It is one thing to describe the phenomenon, it is another thing to understand how to react to it. Hello everyone, I'm Joe Craig, and welcome to this episode of Army Matters. That clip you just heard is an excerpt from the book, The Strategy of Denial, American Defense in an Age of Great Power Conflict, written by Elbridge Colby. Colby, who has served as the Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Strategy and Force Development, currently sits as the co-founder of the Marathon Initiative. He argues in the book that the U.S., along with its allies and partners, must take the threat of China seriously and prepare its forces for conflict. The book looks at how China is working toward dominance in the Pacific, how a possible war might play out, and how to prevent that from happening. Mr. Colby, welcome to Army Matters. Great to be with you, Joe. Your book is centered on the idea that the number one objective for U.S. grand strategy must be to prevent China from dominating Asia. So to just start our conversation, would you explain to our listeners why that's so important for the U.S.? Sure. If we think about the core interests that I think American foreign policy should be seeking to protect, it's basically the American people, of course, our physical security, but also more broadly, our freedoms and our prosperity. And of course, those two things are linked. And if we think of the greatest danger to that, it's the agglomeration of power outside of the United States by some other state, basically, who have so much power in the international system that it could undermine our way of life, our economic security, and so forth. And if we look at the international system, Economic productivity, which is the source of power in the modern world, is not randomly distributed. It's clustered in a few key regions. But by far the most significant of those is Asia, and that's only becoming more so. It's going to be well over 50% of global GDP going forward. Is that a concern? Well, yes, because by far the other strongest state in the international system is in Asia, which is China. It's roughly about the same size as our own economy. And increasingly, I think it's pretty obvious or evident uh, that they are pursuing what I think of as regional hegemony, which is dominating Asia and from that position becoming globally preeminent. And that would have really very serious and I think awful consequences for the American way of life. Could you give uh, maybe just a couple of concrete examples? How would that affect Americans' lives if China were to dominate the region? Sure. Look, I think we'd become a lot poorer and a lot more insecure in terms of our jobs and we'd become less free. And I don't think we have to speculate so much anymore because you can see what the Chinese are doing to the Australians right now. They're using their economic power uh, to try to get the Australians to change their own domestic legislation, constrain free speech, foreign interference laws, et cetera, because the Australians had the audacity to call for an independent investigation of the origins of COVID-19. 
there's a lot of debate right now in the United States about what the proper role and structure of the social media companies is. We, we all know that they're really important. People have different views around the political, across the political spectrum of how to deal with that. But we're all presuming that Americans will be able to chart our own course. But if China dominates the global economy and is the gatekeeper for the world's largest market area, that will not be the case. American social media companies will basically become subsidiaries or something of, of Chinese companies. Now, one of the models that's been discussed is the creation of a NATO-style alliance among Asian countries, along with the U.S., of course. Would something like that work to deter China? I don't think we need a full-scale alliance, like a full-scale Asian-NATO. Lord Salisbury once said that there's nothing more dangerous than the carcass of dead policies or something like that. NATO is a particular manifestation. It's developed in a certain way. It's a formal multilateral alliance. I'm not sure if we recreated you know, our security architecture in Europe that we would create it exactly the same way. That kind of security structure, leaving that aside, it doesn't really work in Asia. It's very demanding to get countries to sign on to a political alliance. It'd be very controversial. There are a lot of internal disputes among our allies and partners in Asia, for instance, between the Japanese and the South Koreans. Look, at the end of the day, what we need is a coalition that works together to check China's aspirations for regional domination. We don't need Korea and Japan to agree on everything to come have a kumbaya moment. What we need is for them both to be able to defend themselves, and particularly Japanese, to contribute to collective defense, say, over Taiwan. I think it's more of a, a mixture where we're going to have these formal alliances. There may become smaller multilateral alliances, like I could see U.S., Japan, Australia, for instance, becoming a multilateral alliance. That may evolve into an Asian NATO, but I don't think we should prioritize that. What we should prioritize is getting our allies to spend more on defense and in ways that would be effective against Chinese attack. That's much more important than the political symbolism of nation NATO. Taiwan is the most attractive target for China's focused and sequential strategy for several reasons. The first is related to China's own interest in it. For decades, the Chinese Communist Party has made clear that reunification with Taiwan is a national imperative. Xi Jinping himself has described this goal as essential to realizing national rejuvenation. But Taiwan is also an attractive target because of its importance to Washington's differentiated credibility. That is, even though Taiwan is not a full-fledged U.S. ally, nervous regional states are unlikely to see its fate as materially different from that which would befall full-fledged U.S. allies in similar circumstances. Indeed, these actors, wondering about U.S. differentiated credibility, are most likely to regard Taiwan as a canary in the coal mine than as a bird of a different feather. You mentioned a minute ago about the importance of forming alliances. Obviously, we have formal alliances with nations like Japan, Australia, South Korea, and a quasi-alliance with Taiwan. What other countries in the region do you see as being key, ones we should consider working with? Really what I think we should be willing to work with anybody who doesn't want China to dominate Asia and shares our willingness and capability to do something about it. And the most important, well, Japan, of course, but the most important other country is India well over a billion people, uh, hugely important, but actually doesn't want a formal alliance. And my view is great. Okay. Like, <laughs> you know, we don't need another sort of protectorate kind of state. Uh, we need a country that is not only willing, but keen to pull its own weight, you know, spends a lot on defense, has a very serious military, willing to fight, and is willing to take a kind of a leadership role. The other country that I think most naturally fits into this model is Vietnam. 
which obviously there's the history. I mean, I'm talking to an army audience, but I think it was General MacArthur who said, if you want to have a land war in Asia, you should get your head examined. We don't want to get in a land war with the Chinese, the PLA, if we can possibly avoid it. It's one of the reasons why defending Taiwan makes a lot of sense. The Vietnamese have a very capable military. I mean, it's probably not what it was in 1975, but they're highly regarded. We know they're willing to fight for their country. That's another one where I think this kind of partnership model can make a lot of sense. Of course, once even after we assemble this uh, coalition of, of different states, uh, uh, trying to maintain the balance of power in the region, China still might you know, come to the conclusion that it's in their interest to use military force. So what is China's best strategy, if, if that's the way they're thinking? Bill Burns, the director of the CIA, said the lesson that China's learning from Ukraine, one of them is use overwhelming decisive force. And the analogy I always use is the, the Iraq war in 2003. I mean, I was, didn't think it was, it was a good idea, but just looking at it empirically, the United States determined after over 12 years of sanctions that we had failed in our objective of, of, of guaranteeing that Saddam Hussein was not pursuing WMD. And so the United States used mil, you know, direct uh, military force in the most fundamental way to coerce them. And I think that's what China is going to increasingly be tempted towards, and, and they're developing a military to do it. I mean, that's one of the things I, I really, I think is important to point out. You know, when you look at military capability, that reflects not only intent, long-term intent, the kind of military you build, but also uh, future potential, right? Just because one government or one leader doesn't want to use that capability, a future one might, I call it the Albright phenomenon, where the famous or infamous story where she had the debate with then Chairman of the Joint Chiefs, General Powell, about the potential to intervene in, in the former Yugoslavia. And he said, you know, we've got the Powell Doctrine, the Weinberg Doctrine, we don't use our militaries. And she said, what do we have this amazing military for if we can't use it? And that same dynamic will apply in China and that they're building a military for power projection, not simply for territorial defense. And I go into it uh, in, in the book at some length, but their best strategy is, is basically a, a fait accompli invasion uh, certainly of Taiwan to start with, but then it could be used against other states like the Philippines, not to necessarily annex the Philippines as part of the People's Republic, but something more along the lines of what we did to, to Saddam Hussein, where you basically displace the government in question, or you coerce them to do something that they wouldn't otherwise be willing to do. And, and that's where, at the end of the day, I don't think coercion by air or sea is ultimately very reliable form. If you want to do it, as Napoleon said it, if you want to take Vienna, take Vienna. And so I think they're going to need to project and sustain enough ground forces against, say, Taiwan to seize and hold the key territory of the targeted state. And if we can deny that, that's the kind of the, the idea of the strategy of denial. If we can deny that, there's at least uh, a good chance that if a country like Taiwan is, is resolute enough, as the Ukrainians have proved to be, then they can hold on and that anti-hegemonic coalition will function. Well, it sounds like the best thing is to help Taiwan be that resolute. We're going to take a quick break now. But when we return, we'll find out exactly what a strategy of denial actually is. Did you know, as a member of AUSA, you have access to many benefits? From car rental to entertainment discounts, the opportunities are ample. Visit AUSA.org benefits to learn more. China's best target would be Taiwan. But denying China's ability to seize key territory in Taiwan is a tractable problem that the United States and its allies and partners can solve. It is true that Taiwan is relatively accessible to Chinese military forces. Separated from China only by the Taiwan Strait, 
which is eight miles wide at its narrowest point. Yet Beijing would still need to deliver enough of the right kinds of ground forces across that strait to execute a fait accompli. And those forces, the transport ships and aircraft in which they would travel, would still be vulnerable to interdiction by U.S., Taiwan, and other defending forces, which would have many options for frustrating and ultimately defeating a Chinese invasion. We're back with Elbridge Colby, author of the book, The Strategy of Denial, American Defense in an Age of Great Power Conflict. A minute ago, you referred to the importance of preventing a Chinese takeover of Taiwan, and that the best way to do that is through a strategy of denial. Can you play out for us how that would work? It's really important for the defense establishment, and I use that term broadly, to understand what it is that we need to do and what we don't need to do, because we're now we're in a situation of scarcity where we're dealing with a superpower peer that has multiple advantages, proximity, catch-up, focus, et cetera. So we have to really be clear. And in my view, this is a re- denial is a relatively low standard. What I'm saying is if we can defeat the invasion, and that you can do that one of two ways. You can defeat the invasion by preventing them from ever getting onto the island of Taiwan. I think Taiwan is clearly the pacing scenario now. But it would work against the Philippines too or Japan down the road, et cetera. You can deny their ability to, to get on in the first place, or you can deny their ability to hold that key territory. And I think we've seen in Ukraine where to some extent there was some preventing of the Russians from even getting there in the first place, but a lot of it was preventing their ability to consolidate their hold on the territory. And if we, the Americans, the Taiwanese, the Japanese, et cetera, maybe the Australians can do that sufficiently, then the, the, the Chinese will not be able to consolidate the fait accompli. But the problem with denial is it's, it's a relatively low standard militarily. The problem is that we're for the first time in our history as international power, we're dealing with a peer economy. So it's really, really, really hard. If it does reach this point where uh, China invades, say, Taiwan, and they're either at the stage where they're looking to consolidate their gains or establishing themselves where we might be facing a recapture scenario, what are the risks of it escalating beyond that point? Uh, And how do we keep it to a limited war at that point? Look, nobody knows how a war between two superpowers would go, um, two nuclear-armed superpowers would go. I don't recommend it. <laughs> it's, a, it's a bad idea. But look, we have to be prepared for it. Really, what I think it is, is about this burden of escalation idea is kind of using our, especially our conventional forces, to try to deny China the ability to create a new set of facts on the ground. So we won't have to rely on escalation so much. We want to make the other guy rely on escalation. If we think of sort of human nature and intuition, logic, game theory, whatever, If you're the one that has to use nuclear weapons or something to try to force the other guy to do something, to move off of something that he already owns, that's a heavier burden. It means basically violent negotiation. Once the Chinese are in this fight, it's going to be really important for them to come out in a defensible way. So that's going to be bad for us. It's going to be harder to conclude the war. By the same token, though, it's probably going to make them more cautious about getting into it in the first place. It drives me crazy, Joe that we're not doing everything we possibly can, because once this war starts, it is going to be harder to, to manage. But we've got, to, we've got to do our best. I hear from a lot of Asia-Pacific diplomats and experts and stuff that if Taiwan falls, the game might be up. Switching gears slightly, I'd love to talk about the bear in the room, Russia. You've already talked about some of the lessons that China is taking from Russia's invasion of Ukraine. But what lessons are we learning from it? And with all the attention on the war... What are the dangers of taking our eyes off the Pacific to refocus on Europe? 
huge danger. I, I, in fact, I think we are doing that. I mean, I wrote a piece in the Wall Street Journal with uh, my friend, ca uh, colleague Oriana Mastro uh, in February saying we can't let Ukraine become a distraction from Taiwan. And I got a, a lot of flack for it. But I think it's happening. I mean, you know, the, the administration has more than doubled the force presence in Europe uh, to over 100,000. It doesn't appear to be going down. And have also not been putting a lot of pressure on the Europeans, especially, for instance, the Germans, to meet their defense commitments. So I'm very worried. And, and this is just this is factual. I mean, we don't have a military that's sized and shaped to fight two major wars on even roughly concurrent timelines. We're a global power, but we're not increasing the defense budget. We're not making really hard trades within the defense program. Meantime, China's increasing its defense spending 7 to 10% every year. And they're beyond stealing our IP at this point. They've already probably stolen most of the IP they're going to get from us. Now they're in developing indigenous technology. I mean, they got some of those hypersonic breakthroughs before we did. Look, China is 10 times the size of the Russian economy. Asia is more important than Europe. And the, the rest, the EU states vastly dwarf Russia in latent military power. It's just a question of will. They have huge economic scale. What should we learn from the situation I think the most important thing is that major war is possible. I think there were a lot of people out there, including in the military, actually, including senior general officers, for instance, who didn't think a major war with Russia or China is possible. Now, we are not in direct conflict, but it's pretty darn close. Secondly, I think what Bill Burns said is correct, which is Putin was actually, I think, correct in his assessment. I mean, it was wrong morally, but he was analytically correct that he needed to use military force to get Ukraine to do the things that he wanted to do, that Ukraine was not going to come over to Russia's side through the gray zone voodoo or whatever. No, he's going to have to go in the old fashioned way, but you know, it's just as relevant as it, as it ever was. What he was wrong about is his ability to pull it off. Apparently now the Russians are obviously making progress. We'll see how this all pans out. But I mean, his assessment of the military balance was wrong. One set of options to blunt a Chinese invasion of Taiwan would be to engage Chinese forces before they even got underway. The defenders might, for instance, seek to disable or destroy Chinese transport ships and aircraft before they left Chinese ports or airstrips. The defenders might also try to obstruct key ports, neutralize key elements of Chinese command and control and intelligence, or attack other critical enablers, including other targets on the Chinese mainland, so that the surviving assets were more vulnerable. And once Chinese forces entered the street, U.S. and other defending forces could use a variety of methods to disable or destroy Chinese transport ships and aircraft. These defenses could be expected to grow in number and density as Chinese forces neared the Taiwan littorals. The ultimate purpose of such a layered defense would be to ensure that no Chinese ground forces actually made it to Taiwan, or that those that did survive the strait crossing were insufficient to seize Taiwan's key territory. It's pretty clear we're going to have to make some adjustments. And if the listeners would excuse a naval analogy... Shifting a defense strategy is kind of like turning a ship. It's going to take a lot of time and effort. So what specifically should we start doing now to effectively deter China? And what would success look like? Well, let me answer the second one. I think success looks like a balance of power. It's not regime change. It's not dismemberment of China. It's not Tokyo Bay in, in August 1945. 
I actually think success is kind of detente in which the kind of quote unquote free world, for lack of a better term, has its own strength and integrity. But we have to have detente from position of strength. And right now we don't have that. So it's it, we cannot do detente now because China will pocket the concessions and keep going as the, frankly the Soviets did in the late 1970s. Detente worked when Reagan did it at the end of the 1980s from a position of strength, right? So, I mean, uh, historical analogies are always imperfect, but that's the basic idea. What do we need to do? Not to mention, this is a very important part of the book, the chapter towards the end called The Binding Strategy. A lot of this is about presenting China with dilemmas, both in the sense that, you know, you're generating fires from missile forces, air defense, et cetera, but also that they face a problem where they're going to have to decide, well, if U.S. ground forces, whether they be Army or Marines, are on Philippines, Japan, et cetera, do we strike those early or do we allow them to disperse and become these lethal and resilient capabilities that we're going to have to grapple with? I want a force that's good in the near term because I think we're already in the window of vulnerability vis-a-vis Taiwan and the long term. I don't want to have to choose because China is going to probably be super strong in both those times. And I want to deter across time. I don't want a force that's only long range strike at the expense of a forward deployed, you know, really kind of strong forward force, like, for instance, that force design 2030 envisions. I want both of them because that, I, you know, I don't want single points of failure. Is the political will going to be there to use the surge capability? Will it be viable technologically? I want both. And that's where some of the sort of strenuousness of my calls for prioritization come from is because I don't want to take this significant risk in the primary theater because we have a very sort of boutique uh, approach. Frankly, we're not even doing the boutique approach. Our best military experts are telling us that we're not on a good trajectory. So the most important thing is to grapple with the problem and do it right now while we still have a chance, particularly being able to save Taiwan. If Taiwan is lost... Is Manila going to stick around? Is Manila going to implement EDCA? Is is Bong Bong Marcos going to stay strong? I think that's a real question. So we don't really have any time. We need to get at it. Well, you're certainly doing everything you can to make sure people stay focused on the threats in the Pacific. Mr. Colby, thanks for coming on the show today and sharing with us your insights and thoughts on how we can approach this issue. Thanks, Joe. Elbridge Colby's book is The Strategy of Denial, American Defense in an Age of Great Power Conflict available in bookstores and online everywhere. I'm Joe Craig of AUSA's book program. Thanks for listening. Have a great Army day. To all our listeners, thanks for joining us. Be sure to subscribe to the Army Matters podcast on iTunes and everywhere podcasts are found. The Army Matters podcast series is brought to you by the Association of the United States Army, the U.S. Army's professional association, member-supported, Army-connected. Visit us at AUSA.org for more information or to become a member. Your membership helps AUSA continue to carry out its mission to educate, inform, and connect with the total Army, our industry partners, and our supporters of a strong national defense. For questions or to provide topic recommendations, email us at podcast at AUSA.org. Have a great Army day. Hua.